Welcome to Positive Disintegration, a path to authenticity. Today, Chris and I are talking with our guest, Dr. Deborah Roof, author of Five Levels of Gifted. We're going to talk about how Deborah incorporates the theory of positive disintegration into her work and what it has meant for her life. And we're also going to talk about all things giftedness, including how it intersects with things like personality type and circumstance. Deborah uses many tools in her work in order to understand gifted people. And if you're like me, the one thing you'll take away from this is how wonderfully complicated and marvellous human beings are. Hello, happy listeners, and welcome back to Positive Disintegration. I'm Emma Nicholson. I'm Dr. Chris Wells. And Chris, today we've got a very interesting author to have a discussion with about giftedness. That's right. We have Dr. Deborah Roof with us today, and I'm so excited to have her join us because, I don't know, I feel like she's been a part of my thinking for a long time because when I was first getting to know Michael, you know, I was reading his Rethinking 2 paper, and her study is one of the ones that he included. So excited to have her with us today quoted by the master himself. So today's guest is Dr. Deborah Roof, who's the author of the award-winning book, Five Levels of Gifted. And in 2023, she released a follow-up, The Five Levels of Gifted Children Grown Up. For more than 40 years, she has served as a keynote speaker, workshop and conference presenter, and written chapters for five textbooks, more than 12 peer-reviewed journal articles, and over 100 articles and handouts for newsletters, magazines, and websites. Among Deborah's various roles, she has served as the National Gifted Children Program Coordinator for American Mensa and was awarded the Mensa Foundation's Intellectual Benefits Award in 2007. Welcome to the podcast, Deborah. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, welcome. Yeah, like I've already said, I feel familiar with your work and I'm excited to talk about your new book, but we all we have like a tradition on the podcast of kind of always asking people to tell us how they came to Dabrowski's theory. So... We're excited to hear your story. (laughs) Well, it was a busy time in my life when I was in over my head with my children, had started a doctoral program and had a child in show business as well. And it really made it a, a tense time for me to learn. And I got to go to different conferences from the late 80s, uh, throughout the 90s, and then right up until like 2017. And I haven't been to anything since. But uh, it was at one of those that I learned about Dombrowski. And I had already been reading Linda Silverman's work. And she had introduced me to the Advanced Development Journal. And it was in the first or second edition of that that I read Karen Nelson's explanation of positive disintegration. And it really hit home for me and reassured me that although I might from time to time think I was crazy, I was at exactly the place I wanted to be, which meant sometimes you do feel crazy when you're rethinking your life. And I was in my late 30s, early 40s when I first discovered it. And shortly after uh, that, I, you know, through the grapevine, heard about the first mini conference in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And it was about 
Dombrowski and Michael Piakowski and uh, Linda Silverman and several other people very connected in the field also were there. And it was like a camping experience. We did everything outside. And I got to know a lot of people as they too were learning about the theory. I started reaching out to some of my relatives because I still wasn't doing a lot of, well, no no paid work in my field yet. And one of my people I reached was my son, who was, I think we told him about this in the late 90s when he was just getting out of college and feeling rudderless. And I sent him this from Karen Nelson, Advanced Development Journal, and he said he loved it. It made such a difference to him, too. So that that's how I got involved. And then it fit into all the other things I was examining about high intelligence and intensities. And I didn't look into OEs that much because I thought, well, sure, that's obvious. <laughs> you know, I mean, everyone around me was like, moving all the time. So I, I just thought, yeah, okay, OEs. But I was really interested in those stages of development and growth. So that's how I started to weave it into my work. It's interesting because rarely do we hear somebody say that it's the levels that was most compelling to them or the theory. Like most people in gifted definitely come in and, and overexcitability is the thing that they're most interested in. So Not interesting. Me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was thinking like, yeah, yeah, but that's not interesting. And so to me, it was the hope. Another thing that happened around the same time was uh, one of the psychology. I took, I, I have more than a dozen psychology courses from graduate school too. And what I read one day is Erickson's list of the developmental stages that are natural, not just through the thinking of the people. And I saw from the very beginning, I was missing important things. My mother had gone deeply into depression a month before I was born. And she lost a brother to a tragic accident. And she was not there for me when when it happens that you have some trauma in the mother in the first year of the child's life, you really can miss that bonding experience with the parent. So I started to put all these different things together and realized I have some recovering to do, but what I'm reading with Dombrowski and Piakowski and Silverman and Erickson uh, is I can recover and I am going to. <laughs> and so I was on a mission to incorporate all of these theories. I, I never pay attention to just one. It's how I weave them together that makes my work probably a little more complex, but people can choose what resonates with them. And everything I write isn't going to resonate with people, but it's the different things that you provide, and I try to provide, that gives people the options of seeing where they fit. I love that about your work. You're the only person who talks about giftedness and not only gives us, you know, that level of gifted information quantitatively, but all this qualitative detail, including their level of development, because you used, um, like you coded, you know, based on 
the DRI and I don't know, use Nancy's system, maybe the max with the values. I don't remember. I don't remember because it's been years since I read your dissertation and thought about it. But yeah, that's one of the things that I love about your work is that you bring Dombrowski into it and in the way that you do and, and the way that you weave it together in the new book is, is so cool to read, you know, from my perspective, as somebody who studies this, like, all I can think of is like, how have we not had this until now? I think it's, it takes a a lifetime. It takes a lifetime for a person to be able to put it all together. Right. But it's really, it's special to have it, you know, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate that there's so little longitudinal work in the gifted field, because I mean, this is how we understand giftedness across the lifespan. And it's so critical. One of the things I might suggest for getting more is to make people able to make a living doing it. I was fortunate enough to not have a lot of expectations for pay, but you always have to have something supporting you as you work. And I took a look at what it would take to write grants and try and get funding. Uh, No, I can't do that. But some people can. And I think there should be a support system for researchers who are are willing to do that. I mean, it really, I started looking everyone up in 2014 from the first book. And I had to get memberships in all these search engines and so on to find them. And uh, it, it took a lot of time. And when you write longitudinal studies like my dissertation, which was a retrospective longitudinal study, and then this one that is an actual one, what you do is have to see what you're getting before you know what you're going to write about. And so it it takes a lot of time to just think about it and get it absorbed so you can make sense of it. And I would point to probably, well, there were two people whose reviews of the book that I asked for ahead of time were the most meaningful to me. One of them was from Jim Delisle, who said, this is everything. This is, it's a big book, but it has, you've just considered everything and so respectfully of the subjects. That made me feel good because I certainly tried to not make anybody feel they'd done anything wrong because people aren't doing anything wrong. They're doing what they know to do at the time. Then the other one was uh, Colleen Harson. She she wrote like ten paragraphs that I could switch around, and I thought, no, I want to use them all. <laughs> but but she she just we've known each other since the Davidson Foundation was set up. I mean, I was there then, and I was one of their people who talked to clients and so on, young scholars, and so. We always, she and I always had this connection, and, and so did Jim Delisle and I, where it was very intuitive between us. And so when I write something, it resonates with them rather quickly, and they start to see what to look for for their own personal interests. And uh, I was fortunate to be able to contact Dr. Delisle because he's very retired, but I know Judy Galbraith. <laughs> with whom he wrote some books and so on. And I said, I can't find him anywhere. And she said, why do you want to find him? And okay, I'll reach out to him for you. So, but it takes a certain drive and comfort really to be able to take all those steps. So again, we need to 
be aware of how to find the people who will do the work and make sure they have a sustainable way of doing it. I agree. When possible. Otherwise, <laughs> you know, they do what I did, which I just did it. <laughs> well, that's what I do. I mean, I, this is what I'm doing for my work and trying to fund it. And it's really challenging because there is no yes. physician. And I mean, when I was finishing my PhD, I just knew by the time I was done with it that this is what I wanted to do. And it was really stressful because I was just had no idea how to, what to do. And I'm just blessed. And I feel the privilege of having a partner who can support us while I find my way. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is. It, but that is a, a kind of privilege for sure. And it's great. But, uh, now that we have these membership blogs and centers and so on, I look at what it, it, the world's different than when we went to all these conferences and independent people paid their own way. Now I can reach people through my writing and through video chats and podcasts, and it doesn't cost us as much to do that. And so I have been contributing to others like me. That's why I signed up and paid the requested but not not required fee for the positive disintegration page on Substack. It's very appreciated. And same, like I am happy to support your work too. And I love that right. about Substack. Even if it's a total swap, it's fine. <laughs> right. Like it's yeah. I mean, I I appreciate you and I feel that way about Substack that it's nice to be able to to help support other people. I get it. <laughs> Because I live yeah. that. Well, I'm so glad you're doing this work. This is just great. Well, thank you. But yeah, before we jump into more about your book, if you don't mind, kind of building on what you've already said, is there anything else that you want to say about your own gifted journey or positive disintegration journey? And, you know, even like from your perspective as a parent, like watching your children grow up, like whatever you want to talk about, we'd love to hear more about you. I figured out also that personality matters. And I, I guess I was in about first or second grade when I started really watching people, trying to figure out what made different people tick. When I went through different things in school and neighborhoods and friendship circles or not, I, I started to look at what was going on, what part of me made some people like me and others not what kinds of behaviors worked for making friends. And then I looked at other people that I, I wanted to be kind to and like, but why did I not like them as much, you know? So I, I've always done that. And then, of course, trying to figure out my relatives. I, I started to trip over different tools that I could bring into my work. And that really started, I remember in third grade, asking how to average grades. You know, they weren't bringing that up yet. They just gave you grades. And I wanted to know how to average them, how I could keep track of them. And I had pretty easy access to the kinds of grades and standardized test scores others in my class got. And I started paying attention to that and seeing how it connected to the way they were, how they were being, how they were about their schoolwork. Um, I also lived in different neighborhoods over my school career, where sometimes there were a lot of poor people. Sometimes there were more, there was more balance of the whole spectrum of social class. I remember discovering 
what some people couldn't, couldn't do because of where they were coming from. For instance, in high school, I got to be in activities after school. First, my parents could afford it, and they didn't really want us kids home. <laughs> so, you know, it was good to go back to school where we felt safe and liked. And that was a motivator. But I had friends. And in 11th grade, they have the first round of the people who get to be an honor society, who get the honor of being chosen to be in the honor society. Well, my mother raised me to be a B-plus student on purpose. She wanted me not to fixate on grades. And B-pluses were good enough. Handwriting doesn't count, you know, things like that. And so I, I didn't have the usual grades they were looking for. They were high enough. But I got in, and my two best friends did not. And they were really good students and every bit as smart as I am. One was my boyfriend and one was my girlfriend. The three of us were very good friends. Well, did they have a discussion with each other when I got in and they didn't? And I had to figure out and share with them. I think the reason is I was in so many activities that more teachers knew me. And that didn't occur to them naturally. But that's the kind of thing I could put together just because the way my brain works. And believe me, I am not smarter than those two. It was just, that's the way I think and decipher and put things together. And it isn't always helpful uh, in grade getting. <laughs> it isn't because it means you don't even know what the teacher wants. But they felt better about that. And the next year they did both get in. But I started to realize then they were at a disadvantage because one absolutely couldn't afford to go. And her life was so different, she couldn't be in the activities. And th my good friend, the boyfriend, uh, he had to work. He couldn't, he couldn't take time for those things. He worked for a family business, and he, he had to. I look at this kind of thing throughout my life then. Where, who are we meeting? It doesn't mean we're better or worse than they are. We have different opportunities, we have different options, and we have different ways of figuring things out. So uh, I've always thought of myself as a translator. And as early as third and fourth grade, kid in the class would not understand the question the teacher was asking. And I'd say, I didn't get in trouble after the first week. They all got used to me. But I, because <laughs> I did interrupt a lot. But I said, oh, what he wants to know is this. And I'd tell the teacher what the kid was really asking about. And then the teacher would answer the kid, and the kid still wouldn't understand it. So I'd translate what the teacher was saying so that the other student in my class got it. People started to count on me for that. The last time something like that happened in a school situation was toward the end of my doctoral program. I was in a test and measurement class with eight men and me, and then the male professor. And we had a break, went into the hall. The guys clustered around me and said, I don't understand this. I said, neither do I. And they're all saying they don't understand it. And they say, you ask him. He likes you. <laughs> but what they knew is I knew how to ask the question and then translate it because he liked all of us. And that's what I did. And everybody was satisfied. And so that's what my writing does, and that's what my consulting did, too. 
that it was a way of helping people decipher what's going on and how to deal with it. I love that. You just like <laughs> that. It's so interesting to me because you reminded me of something that I wanted to bring up in this episode, but I don't know if I would have if you hadn't just told us that. But like one of the things that I learned about personality that really helped me reframe my past is understanding like what you're describing is like you're a thinker, right? I read somewhere, I think that you're an INTP, like in the MBTI, right? M-E-I. Okay, EI. And so I'm an INFP. And so like when I was growing up, because I grew up knowing that everybody knowing that I had like a really high IQ, they expected me to act like a thinker, right? But I don't. Mm -hmm. I am an emotionally intense feeling person that felt just broken because I couldn't do the things that they wanted me to do. You know, and that was so validating in your book. I could cry, like just saying this. Mm. Like, and I actually, one of the quotes that I saved, I want to read to you about personality is this. This is about perceivers, not INFPs, but perceivers. Mm -hmm. They seem stubborn, undependable, and unfocused. Their lack of follow through and compliance in school is seen as a sure sign they're doomed, (laughs) will never find a job, and are wasting their abilities. This kind of child is frequently an outright embarrassment to his or her parents, too, because they see the behavior as a bad reflection on their parenting. I mean, like, (laughs) thanks for describing my um, adolescence especially so well. I was actually a very um, compliant – I mean, I – school was nothing. Like there was no challenge for me in elementary school. Like there was no acceleration. I was born to teenage parents. And so they put me in gifted and never even told my parents until I brought it up someday, you know, and they were like, what do you mean you're in gifted? (laughs) But like, (laughs) well, by the time I was in middle school, I was like completely shut down from learning. And so, I mean, this was me. And I feel lucky that I wasn't, I don't think an embarrassment to my parents because they were young and not caught up in achieving, you know, that's not what they cared about, but being a perceiver, a feeler and having a very high IQ, you're, you're like underachievement material. Yeah. Not getting validation from others matters more to a feeler than it does to a thinker. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Uh, You know, I had, I had this, what do they know anyway, attitude. (laughs) Because right. when I caught a teacher, and I wasn't looking to catch a teacher in a mistake, but when a, my favorite example is when we were studying in history, something about the Reformation, the Christian Reformation, and uh, Protestants and what Protestants were. And I said, oh, they were protesting. And my teacher looked at me and said, no, I don't know. <laughs> and I thought, what? And I thought, oh, well, okay. Not listening to him anymore. <laughs> wow. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, no, <laughs> could anything be more obvious? Yeah. Seriously. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, it was um, seventh grade, eighth grade. And then I just thought, well, this guy's a jerk. I'm not going to listen to him. <laughs> right. Wow. So I'm listening to all this, Deborah, and it's making me understand why I think approaches like yours matters so much to people um, in understanding themselves because you talked about having these many lenses many frameworks with which to view yourself Chris you just read out the the quote around P but that's going to help you understand one little parcel of your life 
Um, and you, I think you need many lenses sometimes to see all the different components because people are complex beings they have different backgrounds they have different strengths they grow up in different environments um and i was thinking about i read a blog of yours around how different personality types you know if you're one type but you're raised by parents that are of a different type and don't get that that can cause a attention um and also thinking about what dabrowski says about the three factors that there's you know people are complex things made up of many different parts and what we have to try and do is find the bit of commonality or the window or the mirror that allows us to see one part and then we've got to keep repeating that process of connecting through many things so if you think of one of those walls that are made out of those glass bricks you almost end up with something like that and that's the way mm-hmm. you view yourself is through many lenses and many mirrors you're not just going to get a one-to-one match immediately and go this is the be all and end all i can understand myself absolutely completely through this one thing and i think the more perspectives that we have on ourselves as complex humans the better the depth of the understanding we have and the better we can deal with our past and accelerate our healing and develop our personality so i really appreciate that you know about how you've basically got a philosophy on your work is that we need all those different lenses because without it we're just like it's like a jigsaw puzzle with half the pieces missing i agree if you don't mind i wonder like while emma was just saying that it made me think and plus also kind of building on what i had just said about my own past like not only did it help to see what you said about being a perceiver like i guess i just never connected it with those things because i was diagnosed with adhd in adulthood and I resonate with that because I'm an INFP, especially I have that dream way of thinking, you know, when you're a dreamer like that, I mean, that is inattention, like you're in your own head. So like understanding all of these pieces of me helped me heal the past. Again, like you're saying, like, you know, when you talked about how you realized, you know, the trauma in your mother's life, like it's so powerful to be able to have that awareness, to be able to accept it. So many people deny reality and can't face the past or their, their pain. And until you can like unlock that in yourself and be able to do it, you're, you're kind of stuck in patterns. I'm, I'm going through a stage right now where as I meet different people, I've gotten to a stage of understanding that has me far more joyful, far more often when there are people who I see are really stuck and they brush it off as that's the way I am, and yet they've got one complaint after another, I'm not sure how to react anymore, except, you know, I want to run away. (laughs) Because, and I know when I was at those beginning stages back in my late 30s, early 40s, and so on, believe me, it, it continues and continues. But uh, there were some of the wonderful people I met at these conferences. You, you, we were talking about several of them, and many of them are practicing psychologists and therapists. I'm not that. I felt they got me and understood me, but they certainly weren't at that event to counsel me. And that's how I started to feel about some of the places I find myself. And I'm trying to learn how to be kind and interested without trying to fix. It's their journey to take. 
and I throw out the information in my writing and speaking, but it's still their journey to take, and it it can't be done by someone else for you. Oh, that's so true. It's That's very real. And it's a challenge when you're in the public life like this and people know your work. I mean, exactly, like you do get that from people, I'm sure. I mean, I hear you. Yeah, and a lot of people, they're in such pain or they're so angry, or they're so disappointed, or they're so bitter. And there's not enough of a psychological safety net in in so many places. And yet, uh, it's really caused my development of a belief in a, a real safety net for families. But for, you know, everybody came from a family. It shouldn't be about repairing ourselves later, <laughs> as much as it is about supporting the people in their parenting. And we don't even ask, I mean, everything requires a license, except you can have a kid anytime you want. <laughs> and it's like, True. And they're yours. They're yours. <laughs> and they can do with you behind closed doors, whatever they think they should. And uh, that's crazy, in my view. <laughs> So I would like, and I, we've got to figure out how to do it so that it isn't by people who aren't really capable of being the support system. And so what does that mean? Well, we've got to improve access to education and real life skills uh, to everybody. And we have too many people who are left out, not just in the United States or Australia, but in other places too. There are a lot of places that we still just don't give quite the support. And here we really don't give much support. And even going to therapy is way expensive. Most people can't afford to do it. I, I think you could tell when you read the book, I, I kind of believe in getting help. It comes through, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you just said, made me think of another quote that I had saved about education. We must change how we educate all students. We need a major overhaul of the system in how we train, pay, and support teachers and families. And we cannot give gifted children what they need when we set up our schools in ways that don't meet the needs of most children. So yes, like we need to support the family. We need to support kids at school. Like These supports don't really exist. Mm -hmm. And not only for gifted children, but for any children. Right. This, the reason I focus on gifted children is it takes away the element of were they smart enough. Okay, that's settled. But this is about human beings. It isn't just about gifted human beings. It's just showing if it can happen to the outliers and the really smart people. Imagine what's happening to the people who don't even have the same level of saving themselves available. Like I have seen that in my own life. I mean, I've talked before on the podcast or even other people's podcasts about, you know, my own struggles when I was younger. And I kind of ended up in a situation where I was like living homeless for a while when I was 26. And mm. I realized how much my giftedness helped me get out of that. Not only be I had, of course, some privilege to be able to go move with my parents again, eventually, but I was able to, you know, get a job working with computers and learn so fast, like what I needed to do to get a decent job where I ended up meeting my husband. And I know that my giftedness was such a huge part of 
all of that, figuring things out, learning, you know, being able to suddenly work after being on disability for several years or mental illness. It's because of my mind, you know, and my heart, of course. But in the gifted literature, you see so often that they're like, well, there's no special vulnerabilities in being gifted. They have the same kind of issues anybody does that's not more prevalent in the gifted. This is what they say. And they give research that shows like group tests, or they're not using the kind of data you use. You know, you have access because of the work you did. I say as somebody who worked with Linda Silverman, who has similar kinds of data on extremely gifted people. I mean, there are vulnerabilities in this population. It's just dead wrong to say that there's not. And the fact that these papers that make these claims, I mean, they just don't show the levels of giftedness that we need to make the case. But you can make and it. <laughs> I do. But what I also try to do is make it clear it isn't something inherently different about the gifted. It's the fit they find. Yes. If we were forever automatically in the right fit for ourselves, the way a, a good chunk of the middle section of the bell curve is, uh, we have more difficulties because we are squeezed in, you know, the, the uh, square peg in the round hole. It's important to recognize that being highly intelligent doesn't mean you're going to be emotionally disturbed. It's the environment that causes the emotional disturbances when we don't get our needs met. And so, but they don't tease that apart in in the way they write and do the research on many things. And it can fool people, which actually brings us back to positive disintegration. Because when we read that there, there shouldn't be anything wrong with us, the research shows you should be just like anyone else. And then we find we aren't. Knowing about positive disintegration gives us a, a real sense of relief. It's just that our thinking is getting us to places of wondering who we really are and what we're here for. And all this thinking, even feeling thinking, uh, we, we need to solve this for ourselves before we can be our most productive selves. You connected well with another quote. One more thing from the book. Let's see. It is not the high IQ or intellectual level that causes personal problems for many of our most intellectually gifted people. It is the ongoing presence of a poor environmental fit during their childhood. The better the fit, the better the social, emotional, and any other kind of well-being outcome measure they will have. So it's so <laughs> funny because I had that ready to go. How, how perfect was that? I'm glad that stood out for you because that is kind of the summary. I'm, I'm applauding here on mute. Um, but also when you were talking about the round, whole round peg thing, that's exactly the analogy that was sitting in my mind. And it's like even round pegs, when we're talking about individual difference, and I think this is what you're alluding to, like if it's not a good fit for gifted people, it's not a really a good fit for anyone. Like even though they're mostly round, they're probably slightly irregular, maybe a little bit egg-shaped. <laughs> but when you get to the mm -hmm. point of being square or triangular or star-shaped and you try to get crammed into that little round hole, and I say if you're a star-shaped peg and we try to cram you in a round hole, all your points are going to fall off and you're still going to have gaps <laughs> under your armpits. So the, the greater the misalignment and the inability to fit, 
that is what causes the the t- psychological tension. And as you were saying, particularly with positive disintegration, that's the psychological tension that makes the difference. And it's not that there's anything wrong with being a star-shaped peg. It's just that, like, you're really, really uncomfortable when you're crammed in that round hole. Mm-hmm. And I did teach school too. And uh, I taught elementary school, even though sometimes I've even – had a I was an ENTJ during some years because somebody had to do it. This kind of the way I looked at it. I was around too many others who weren't solving problems in the school. And my way of solving it is pulling out my perceiver part, which is a more relaxed open. And the kids would get all wiggly, you know, during the school day. And I'd say, hmm, I'm thinking we need to go outside. <laughs> and they'd, they'd all say yes. And uh, I got blanket permissions from the parents of my sixth graders to go outside and even on walks. And uh, I also got disposable cameras so that we could have some purpose besides just, you know, walking around. And we did that a lot. And I would have them write about what they'd done and so on and work in little groups. But I hardly ever required that my class be quiet. I wanted them to interact with each other. I individualized so that they would be working in clusters and they would have the same kinds of readiness for the materials. I brought in materials from other places. But teachers today, I'm not sure they have the... I mean, I I always kind of thought uh, it's easier to get forgiven than get permission. And so I don't know even... If I, if I taught today, if I wouldn't have been somewhat of a renegade. But uh, in most classrooms now, it, it's just too, too narrowly prescribed what you should be doing with the students. And I think that's a mistake because it doesn't matter. They, sh- they should be learning. That's all. And the learning comes from all those things. It doesn't have to be one textbook. You can bring a bunch of things together and discuss it and teach writing and teach reading and teach discussion. And, uh, you know, I quoted this one book, uh, The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got to Be That Way. And I'll, I'll give you a hint. It was Finland. And uh, how they did that was by elevating the profession of teaching to be at a similar level to that of being a medical doctor. Pay, supervision, uh, educational levels, and it would it became something that only had people who were really capable of learning how to teach. And we we now don't have those same kinds of requirements because, well, you know, since women's liberation in the '60s, smart women knew they could get better pay going other places. Some still do teach, but uh, they have other options. And that has made quite a difference in the whole dynamic in schools. I, when I say we need an overhaul, we do. And I don't want to names of like the education person that came before the one we have now in the country. But some people are deliberately trying to disenfranchise students and their families from getting an education at all. So, Deborah, you're talking about teachers who have figured out how to make the round hole plasticine and elastic to allow more people to fit into it, and that you know comes from that ability to do that with life. 
I know you've also got a book about gifted children grown up. Do you find that lack of elasticity also continues through to adult life? Because I often find that there's still a lot of very concrete round places in life that extends beyond education. So, you know, when you get out into the, the adult world, it's still there's still some difficulty in trying to fit in some places. Well, I think it's a matter of personality at that point, because in free country, supposedly free, uh, mostly free, you get to go where you want to be. And sometimes you have to take a job uh, that pays the bills before you find your dream job. But I, I really, I'm about giving people permission to not aim for something too concrete. Figure out what you want to do. Too many of us foreclose on our career futures by thinking, like majoring, choosing a major when you're 19 or 20. You don't know what you want to do. But no education is wasted. And that's what I tell people. Don't feel like you made a mistake that it took you until your 40s to really know what you wanted to do, especially if you're raising a family. And I, I want the fathers and the mothers to both be equally involved with those children. So they both might blossom after the kids get older. It's a journey. It doesn't, I'm not into credentialism. And I think that some people think they've got to prove they've used their brain right before they even know what it is they have to contribute. So I I have a very lenient view of success and failure. You know, you're on a journey. And when it's done, it's done. Come on, let's make it count now as far as you finding out how you are going to make a difference in this world and enjoy your life. And so, yeah, I mean, there are people who get kind of tied into something they hate. Well, I say, (laughs) make some plans for how you're going to adjust that. I mean, you've got all this giftedness. You can survive. You don't have to be in that cog in a wheel that you don't like. Yes, that's right. I love that (laughs) message. It's so true. But people are afraid often to take the jump, but do it. You know, exactly. Yeah. So and and know how to budget. <laughs> right. Right. It's really important that we talk about levels of giftedness with you. But when we do that, we need to somehow also address the fact that IQ is perceived by so many people as problematic that it does have a fraught history, but it is still a useful tool. Like I truly believe that because of the work that I observed with Linda. You know, I see how important it is. I see how helpful it is, especially with twice exceptional kids. But I also want to talk with you about another aspect of your book that builds on Dabrowski and kind of personality. Like he thought that we created our personality, Um, but he also acknowledged these types. You know, he for sure thought psychological types were really important. And he emphasized how important it was to overcome your psychological type, to transcend it. And you address that in the book, that we can change these preferences we have and learn. You've already mentioned it, in fact, in this episode, that, you know, you could embrace the P in you. Like, and we can do this. We're not in this box. Mm -hmm. Like, he thought that that inner transformation was critical to reaching higher levels of development. And so, you know, I love that aspect of your book, too. 
because I started giving my clients and their children uh, the personality tests in the early 2000s, I, when I published my first book, my publisher didn't want to deal with personality. So we didn't put it in there, even though we had them. And I was disappointed, but it was wise as far as keeping the book not so big. And so what happened is I kept building my database of these personalities and people, you know, we became family. You work this way with people. You really have them sending you Christmas cards and reaching out and letting you know how everyone's doing. So when I did the follow-up book, I had the children who are now adults take the Myers-Briggs, not the child's version. And I still had their parents when they, when the parents were raising the kids, they had certain types. So I kept those and didn't try and test them again. And I changed since then. And I know that uh, most of them might have too. But that's not the point. When they were raising their kids, this is where they were. And what I noticed is as people matured innerly, you know, if they had an inner growth, if they were getting therapy or or they were doing a lot of self-discovery kinds of things, they would see a change. And usually the change would be toward a more laissez-faire, open type rather than a the more rigid proscribed types. The two middle letters don't often change from childhood to adulthood or old age, but they can soften. So somebody who is a sensor or an intuitive, that's the second letter um, in the Myers-Briggs, uh, sensors tend to see the world in the details, whereas intuitives only need the details long enough to get the big picture. You know, when people say, where did you get that idea? I think I got it myself, but I might have gotten it from an amalgam of things that were the details that I incorporated into my view. It affects how you respond as a student, as a spouse or a partner. It is in reaction to the way a teacher can teach you. Those things matter because if you are in a math class, like my best friend who didn't get into honor society the first go around, she's, she grew up to be a math teacher and a math curriculum developer and really big throughout the grades. She got math. And I said, well, I didn't have, and then I realized we were in all the same math classes from fifth grade through 12th grade. And so she was taught the same way I was. They weren't bad teachers. They just resonated with her because she's an S-sensor. S-sensor tends to be unaware that if you don't give the big picture first to people like intuitives, they don't know what you're talking about until they somehow stumble across it. And that can really impede math instruction. She attended some of my work, and she's going to help me write the trilogy I've talked about, turning the big book into three smaller books. And uh, she knows she can, she's got the focus and the personality to really help with the structure. And she's going to come up with discussion questions and so on. She has learned over the years that the way she taught math and the way she raised her kids was sometimes hard on some of them. 
<laughs> and and she took it okay. <laughs> and she's apologized to to her son, for instance. And uh, so it it really is a helpful tool for people, just like IQs are. They're a tool. They're part of it. They aren't all of it. There we go. Rabbit holes. Well, that was perfect. I mean, it was it was a good segue to talk about levels of giftedness, honestly, because that is something that people have asked us to have an episode about. You know, I mean, for there's for sure there's a YouTube comment, Emma, somewhere where somebody said, "Can't you do an episode about like levels of giftedness?" And so you're the perfect person to talk about that and. It was, that's another thing I love about your book that I, I mean, I rarely get is to be able to see myself in other people in a book. You know, it's very special. It's something that I didn't know until I like found the gifted community that there was like a PG community and that you could meet people and feel mirrored like for the first time in your life by a bunch of people. (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) And so, it is. I mean, it's just, it just seems criminal to me how few people get to have this experience of knowing this about themselves and feeling mirrored who are in this population. Well, we're all spread out. Right. And I'm not in favor of putting us all together all the time either. It's good to have the variety, but not for the subjects that we're really ready to move ahead on, you know, We can't always be waiting and we can't always be rushing ahead either. I mean, I'm not sure even what question to ask you about talking about levels of giftedness, except that they're real. A lot of my work now is around understanding neurodivergence beyond Mm -hmm. giftedness. But the reality is my giftedness feels like a kind of neurodivergence. And technically, I mean, it is because it's a different, I mean, it is a different way of being all giftedness, even the, like all the levels of giftedness seem like a different experience of reality, right? I mean, they are. And so when we're talking about adding other kinds of neurodivergence, like ADHD or autism or whatever it is, I mean, it muddies the water, but I guess I have a lot of questions. I'm sorry. Right. I have an answer. When my kids started, we were in a kind of rural school district. And when I moved for my doctorate, which was partially to get them in a different school area, um, we sent them to a private school because we just thought private schools would be better. And uh, they can, they can be simply because more bright college prep schools don't accept kids who score below average. So they've already cut the bottom out And that means you're going to have a narrower range and they want them to be college capable. And that really starts at the first standard deviation on average. So what we did, I read the mission statement of different schools and this one talked about how they honored diversity. I assumed that included levels of giftedness (laughs) and I was really disappointed to find out they didn't even know what I was talking about. All of our kids are gifted. And I thought, well, this clearly is not true. And part of the reason for me is that I had three children and they were different. And I came from a family that we were different, but we were all pretty darn smart, but it wasn't at the same levels. And so that's what drove me in my doctoral studies to find out 
everything I could about what is intelligence? Where does it come from? How is it studied? How does it affect people? And again, my kind of brain and personality pulled it all together. Now, listen, my kind of work causes a lot of crying on the part of the author. I may have a sense of humor, but I get real emotional when I'm dealing with the lives of real people, even if it's in private. So um, I felt there had to be a way to explain it. And I kept having to repay for an extension because it took me almost, let's see, it took me took me seven years to do my dissertation. And it took me seven years to write my book, this second book. But I was formulating all the stuff for the first book, the first five levels of gifted. I had note cards, you know, the kind index cards, where I wrote down key behaviors and abilities and achievements of all the children in the book. I remember I took them on a visit to my parents where I had time and I just sat there and shuffled through them, kept reading them and rereading them to put them in an order. Computers were just kind of starting in the early nineties. <laughs> I mean, for us common folk, but um, I just sorted them and started to see, are there any distinctions? What kinds of things are there? And it was the onset of different in interests that mattered. And I, I started to see it wasn't a, necessarily across the board. And so uh, I started to categorize them. And when I wrote the second book, first of all, I was dismayed to find out they left out a big part of the level three kids. They were in the chapter, but they weren't in the chart. And I, I have that if anyone needs it. <laughs> <laughs> because they're in the second book and they might say, hey, where's that kid in this book? And uh, their test scores are in the first book. But I, I don't want to out anybody. You know, it's anonymous. As I did that, writing the second book, I moved a bunch of people up into higher levels. And I did that because it became clear that the parents and their personalities related to this the parents gave me the input, not the kids. I wasn't watching the kids. It was from the parents. And uh, I knew all the kids. I'd tested them all and so on. But uh, that's not the same as living with them. And I didn't know them when they were one and two and three and four. And so what happened was some of these parents were looking for academic stuff, despite the questions I asked them. And they would think, well, they know this many words, and they said that many words, and they're reading these things, and they're doing, oh, and they can count them. And I'm thinking, ah, that's not everything. That's not everything, people. There's a spark. There's some kind of thing that shows up. And so I was trying to encapsulate that essence, not just the achievement that looks school-worthy. By the time I got to talk to them myself as young adults and even middle-aged adults, uh, they could tell me themselves what they were like. And I could see. And it, again, it wasn't just the achievement. It was how they were. So I don't know how I would train someone to do that, but I'd recognize someone who could do that. My mother used to look at our classroom pictures when we brought them home from school. And she'd point to the kids and say who was who was smart. 
And she was right. And you know that as a student in the class who the brightest kids are. Most people thought I was really smart. They assumed I had good grades. And as I said, I was I was bred to have B pluses. <laughs> and so they were always shocked that I didn't have straight A's. But those I didn't have to worry about straight A's because no one my family was all right with my just doing my thing. If people follow my free blog on Substack, I keep talking about the levels, the relativity of intelligence, all of those things that I, I hope will resonate. Not everything will resonate with every reader, but I, I'm looking for that connection that people can feel. I guess the question that I am trying to think of how to ask is around like the twice exceptional issue and levels of giftedness. Mm-hmm. How often are kids misdiagnosed? You know, uh, how often is it that a kid is autistic and doesn't get the autism diagnosis because they're PG and their parents are discouraged from giving them a diagnosis? I have heard that a lot personally. Okay. My issue is I'm so used to being around really smart people that to me, I just recognize them as my geeky peeps. And so to me, it isn't that important to diagnose some things. We're looking for the right environment and whatever support they might need. But you do that anyway. So I'm, I never really got into the 2E stuff for that reason. Uh, if somebody is having trouble reading and they should be reading, that's a little more obvious to me that maybe they've got eye tracking that can be straightened out easily or glasses or uh, and dyslexia that should be diagnosed. But as far as the the spectrum, if they're just kind of in a world of their own, that's a real advantage for a lot of work. <laughs> you know, I'm just huh, like, <laughs> that's hilarious. It really is, honestly. As somebody who's like that, well, it's just. I mean, I'm asking the question because so many. I don't uh, see it as a real problem. <laughs> I mean, I don't see it as a problem either. And I think, I mean, and that's the neurodiversity issue where we're. That's that paradigm of. I mean, there's not. It's not something wrong with you. It's just a different way of being. And so I discourage people from worrying too much about labels. And yet I know personally that it it helps you find community and find other people like you to have the language around what's going on with you because it, it's rarely just one thing, you know I mean? Right. If you go looking for labels, I mean, you're going to find a ton of them. I can say that for my own life and my kids and, you know, lots of people, but I don't know. I, I just feel like I realize that you're not aware of this because you're not in these circles of being in groups that are neurodiversity related groups where, you know, the conversation is really around diagnoses more than giftedness. And yet us gifted people are in those spaces. And we find often that we're invalidated by these other folks who are like, it's not gifted, it's autistic. Like they're saying giftedness isn't a real thing. It's a social construct. It's what you do in the classroom. You know, there's so much misunderstanding and lack of awareness around giftedness that it means that we get denied and invalidated as a population, even by people who should be our allies as other neurodivergent people. Yes. Frustrating. You and I I had a little back alley talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. Because sometimes, and I don't know where the heck I came from, really, you know, why I am the way I am. But I do know that when I heard about how we should 
really support our gifted girls. I wondered why I wasn't getting any support from the very same people who were talking that way. <laughs> you know, I was struggling for a lot of my adult life because of a really hectic childhood. I really was a people pleaser. My excessive smiling is still a part of it. I mean, it works, but to keep people calm and feeling like I'm probably not insulting them, and I don't ever purposely insult anyone. But I was not getting the kind of understanding because I was so high-functioning in general. But I learned in my late 60s that if somebody asked me what I wanted to do, I had no idea. I wanted to write, I wanted to explain things. But if we were talking about going somewhere, you know, I knew it was always somebody else deciding. But when somebody would nastily say, well, what do you want to do? I realized I didn't know. And that's because I had a family where I had to not be thinking for myself. And when that happens, that can derail you for a long time. You attract people who love being able to boss you around, and I had that problem. And that was only in my closest relationships. In my real life, you know, outside of the close relationships, I knew what I wanted. I knew what I wanted to do and I didn't want to do, but not in a relationship. And that that may have been a function of the dysfunction generationally in a family that has a lot of really smart people who were all pretty much toxic and dysfunctional. Because I share that openly, it's not a complaint, it's an observation. It helps other people also share because they realize I had no idea and I went through this and I went and, and you know, it, a lot of people do and that helped my writing to know that. We can't just look at people and say they're not living up to their potential. We don't even know what their potential is if they're still struggling with something that's keeping them down and keeping them from believing in themselves or thinking they have a chance. And we have so many systems right now that are absolutely keeping people down. And so uh, I quit believing in what the actual IQs of the world are. And I've, I've helped norm three main tests. I know what test and measurement is. And I really, I, there's too much trauma in too many people to have this be realistic. That's a great way to put it. And yeah, I mean, the trauma aspect is really fascinating to me too. My friend Jen has a podcast, Conversations on Gifted Trauma, and talks about how many gifted people grow up, you know, kind of what you just described, like, like it's generational too, where, you know, you don't realize that you have this difference. You don't realize these aspects of yourself and you revisit your trauma on your children. And, you know, it's like a cycle and it is a cycle. I mean, it's a cycle. And when I went on her podcast, I talked about like, I am happy that I've been able to break the cycle, I think with my son to some extent, but not before causing the trauma first. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I had uh, my grandmother died six weeks before he was born and I'm an only child, you know, an only grandchild on that side. And so to lose my grandmother was like a devastating blow right before having my child. And so that's how we started. 
And, you know, a few years later, my alcoholic father died, like trauma after trauma throughout my kid's life. Mm -hmm. And then I discovered Mm -hmm. Michael's book, Mellow Out, read it and went, oh, my God, like that was to me, the wake up call of I'm revisiting my trauma on my poor son, you know, oh, my God, like really kick things off for me, figuring out like where I needed to go to work on myself how to repair my relationship with my son. Like, what can I do? I have misunderstood this kid. Holy shit. (laughs) Well, I hope you read the part in the book where I teach people how to apologize without excuses. Right. Believe me. I, I went to, I went to something called landmark worldwide that I, you can get coaching through your volunteering to be there pretty much. And, um, one of the things that it took me a long time to get, and it I wasn't unusual in that way, is when you start to realize why you've made mistakes, what the past was that made you make these mistakes, uh, you try and bring those up with the apology, it isn't effective. <laughs> it's got to be that you own what you did. That's right. And that's hard. It's hard because you want to be let down easy for your mistakes. But with your kids in particular, truly just saying, I realize what I said hurt you or I realize what I did was was bad for you and I am so sorry. End of discussion. If they want to talk, they can. But no defending yourself during that. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you said that. I mean, I feel like people need to hear that. And it's so true. And that is what's helped us is that ability to, you know, take accountability and apologize. But I do believe that gifted people have their own kind of traumas because of this experience of being so different and other people aren't getting you. This All, all this discussion just goes to show how complicated a tapestry that a person is. Chris, you were talking about people saying, well, you don't need the gifted label because you've got something else. Well, you know, if that lens helps you make sense of yourself um, and there are other people out there with the same experience that can validate that, hey, maybe this is a thing. There's enough people working in the field, right, that can substantiate that this is a valid way to talk about yourself. Um, well, you know, too bad if people think that the the label's invalid, but it's not them. Like they don't need to see themselves that way. So, so what, really? Yeah. Um, and you, we have to look at those ways of seeing ourselves. Ways, as you said, from you know your trauma informed responses of your actual experiences within your own families or your own environments have to look at you know how your personality is and particularly how it might shift as well because I know I've taken those personality tests a number of times and every time I get a different result depending on where I am in my life depending on what I'm doing as a job for folks so if I take that in the context of my job because they've given me a personality test as part of an interview it gets a much different result from when I do it on my own time and the results that I got, you know, when I was younger are different to the results I get today. And so it's like, you know, with this constantly moving, complex, squiggly thing of threads that are waving. And as we were saying before, anything that helps us make better sense of ourselves and our journey is helpful. And if it helps you, great. And if it doesn't help someone else, well, you know, stay in your lane, dude. <laughs> 
because this is helping me. <laughs> it's like this whole like openness to experience overexcitability that like whatever helps you make sense of yourself, man. Like, because isn't that the whole point of all this shit that everybody's doing is to help people, help people break cycles of trauma, help people develop as, you know, human beings, help people get through their pain, like whatever helps. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah, and I, people say, oh, personality tests aren't valid because they change. I'm thinking what Emma said, they change because we're changing. It doesn't mean the tests are bad. They take that's how we answered that day, and it helps us know where we are. And if we take them more than once, which I, I, that's why I recommend personality page. You can take it for three dollars every time, and uh, you start to see your own growth through that. Your repressive periods and your growth periods, and you start to see how that affects your mood and what you. Uh, respond to and uh, it really it really helps you see also a good therapist will have you uh, go back and look at pictures from different times in your life I see it as very similar because you can see when somebody is at a happy time in their life and a depressed time it shows in their body language in the pictures and so it's a way to start to see, okay, what was going on in my life at that time? Was I lonely? Did I not have any friends? Was I being, did I lose somebody important to me? Was I being bullied? Uh, what was going on? And it shows up in pictures and personality profiling. And so, oh, and what you said, Emma, about uh, the label gifted. I think the label gifted is a is synonymous with your height. I'm 5'3". That's a label, but it's me, and it affects what I can reach. I fit in the seats that don't have much leg room. That's a bonus. But as far as reaching things, changing light bulbs, it's a problem. I can't eat as much as others. I mean, I could, <laughs> but it, then I'd be the same all around. But um, it, it being gifted, it's only about what parts of me are different from others that may cause problems for me or benefits for me in certain environments and certain positions that I take or am in. And I, the people who keep taking IQ tests and want to have tests that find the smartest person, I think is so stupid. Uh, it's, it's a waste of time. Get a life, people. This is not what it's about. It's just a part of the complexity of who we are. I, but I hear you. I mean, I do think often there's been too much of an emphasis on that. One of the last questions I have is there was, I don't know if I say this as one of my quotes, but I, I remember you saying that a difference between levels four and five gifted was uh, like the drive and intensity. And I wonder if you could say something else about that. Well, as time went by, because I just created this levels because I didn't like using the labels of exceptionally and profoundly if we didn't have to. It was really about getting away from the scores and the, the kind of like elitist uh, labels. But people, there are a lot of people who want those labels. And so uh, I changed some of my charts to include a synonymous kind of thing but it, I didn't want to because it's, to me, it's about meeting the needs of, okay, over time, I learned 
that level four was really where I put people who were profoundly gifted in one or two things, not everything. And those are the strengths they should be using. Get an assistant for the others. <laughs> and then uh, level fives, they really have trouble choosing because they score high in everything. And then there is also the drive. So sometimes there are a lot of people in my level four follow-up that I have to admit, they are probably level fives. It just starts to show up. And uh, it's because of their drive, especially, and their good fortune of having the opportunity and the uh, environment. Sometimes they created it themselves and their personalities cooperated and their parents' personalities cooperated. People want black and white answers a lot. I can't give those to them, except sometimes. <laughs> it depends. And so people have to be able to live with that. We we don't, it's a process. It's a process. It's a journey. And uh, it's okay. We're just trying to make ourselves and the world livable. That's right. Well, and that's what Michael said in his episode, right? Like, it's the process, and development is dynamic, and we can never forget yeah. that. And I think that that was yeah. important, and that's your message, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Michael, I, he and I, we always had a good time, you know, because we are the way we are. And he and I can bounce off each other and go, eh, you know, some of the things, eh, I don't care about that. And, oh, I wish you'd. And so it's very collaborative to be around. Michael, yet he's a, I think he's a P perceiver. <laughs> and he's, he, and you know, he, he and I both, he was worried when he couldn't find some of those papers. And I just thought, oh, well, okay. You know, I, I didn't have any kind of problems. It wasn't like, oh no, this is my life's work. No, there's plenty to do. Not worried. <laughs> That's right. People need to buy the book because it's great to have a mirror. I appreciate every good mirror book that I get. And Michael's book was like that, where when I read it, I see myself. And I appreciate being able to see myself in your book, too. It's a really special thing. So thank you for doing it. Thank you. Thank you. Multiple lenses. It all comes back <laughs> to multiple lenses of being able to see yourself. I'm gonna. Can I do a Jerry Springer final thought? Of course. Sure. That is why sometimes I think I get annoyed with people because if we are trying to pigeonhole people and shoehorn them into black and white things and I know Deborah sometimes she said sometimes I can give a black and white answer but it's not always possible because humans are complicated things like Chris who needs many, many mirroring books in order to get some sort of self-understanding. And I know that makes life seem messy and shit and maybe makes it more difficult for us to get our head around. But if we go the opposite direction, then we fail to appreciate the marvellous, beautiful, complex creatures that human beings are and everything that we're capable of insofar as being able to change and grow and move past the things that happened to us in the past so yeah it's complicated but isn't that a marvelous thing throws hands up in air in questioning yep. <laughs> that's yeah, right yeah <laughs> yep. yeah 
It's been great to meet you and get to know you both. I know it has been so great. So thanks to Deborah and also thanks to you, Chris. Always a pleasure. It is always a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. We always appreciate you and hope you got a whole lot out of this conversation. Continue your path to authenticity through the links in the show notes. Subscribe to our Substack newsletter for stacks of cool things delivered straight to your inbox. Explore the Dabrowski Centre, email us, or join us on social media. And don't forget to show your love by liking, subscribing, grabbing some positive disintegration merch, or leaving us a rating or review on your podcast platform.